In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? The Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is the word of the Lord. We're told immediately in this story that this is the time of the judges. Remember, that was about a 200-year period. From the time Moses died and Joshua was told by God to lead the children of Israel now across the Jordan River and to establish themselves in the Promised Land. They wanted no part with kings. They had had 400 years of kings in Egypt, 400 years of slavery. So they resolved to live together as a loose, what sociologists call an amphictyony, a confederation of tribes, 12 tribes representing the 12 sons of Jacob, and that when they had a common enemy, they believed God would lift up a ruler who would draw them together against that enemy. We know a number of these judges from childhood stories about them. Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, Deborah, and others. It was during that 200-year period that our story takes place. Now, scholars looking at this story today say, but there are words in here that are much later. Words that didn't come into the vocabulary that early. That, in fact, the story seems to have been written down in the form we have it sometime after the Babylonian captivity. They think perhaps as early as 450, perhaps as recent as 250 before the common era, before the coming of our Lord. They believe this story was told around campfires for as long as seven or eight hundred years and then put into the very polished form that we have that appears in the Hebrew Scriptures today. 
Scholars are sure this story has real roots in history because there is no way the Jews would have made up a story where their great-grandmother of King David was a Moabite woman. So pretty sure this is the real stuff here. This is what happened. Let's take a look. This is about a family who lived at Bethlehem, about five miles outside the old city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 17 miles above a little place called Jericho. Jericho is found right on the bank of the Jordan River as it's emptying into the Dead Sea. So if you can envision the freshwater lake that the Bible calls the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan flowing south from it and then making the Dead Sea at the bottom, Jericho right at the point where the river empties into the Dead Sea, 17 miles up from there to Jerusalem and about five miles farther over to Bethlehem. It's not raining at Bethlehem. It seems to be raining on the other side of the river, on the other side of the Dead Sea, where the Moabites lived. So Elimelech takes his wife, two sons, and they move. Elimelech dies. His sons take Moabite wives. Ten more years pass. The two sons die. Uh, word has come to Naomi that it's raining again at Bethlehem. They have grain there. Uh, she resolves to go home. The two daughters-in-law are trailing along behind her. She begs them to go back to their people. Uh, they say they will not. She begs them a second time. Orpah says, okay, gives her a kiss on the cheek and turns to walk away. Ruth says, don't ask me to do that again. I'm going with you. That's what this story is basically about today. We'll deal with the latter part of the story next Sunday morning. Of course, I've underlined four things for you to think about. Number one, there are some key words here that we do not hear in English the way people would have heard them in Hebrew, particularly people who could not read nor write. If, in fact, this story was told around campfires for seven or eight hundred years, it was told to people who could not read nor write. And if one cannot read nor write, then one hears sounds that are similar, that come from the same root. So, number one, it says, In Bet-Lahim, there was no Lahim. Bet means house. Lahim, bread. In the house of bread, there was no bread. That's the way the story begins. I remember the first time Gail and I and our two sons went to Israel. One of the places we wanted to see in Jerusalem was Hadassah Hospital. It's a modern, beautiful hospital. It treats thousands of people there. I'm sure they remove appendix when someone has appendectomy and needs an appendectomy. Uh, they remove gallbladders as we would here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But it's also a hospital where lots of bombing victims have been taken, uh, where victims of war, of those who've uh, attacked the Israelis at one point or in the, in the last 60 years. And so an important part of that hospital is its chapel. And the chapel is a place where we tourists like to go because it has 12 beautiful stained glass windows, each one representing one of the sons of Jacob. And these windows were done by Mark Chagall. 
12 beautiful windows. They provide a guide for you so that you may sit in this chapel and see each one of the 12 windows all the way around this circular room. Marc Chagall was a Jew, of course, born in Russia. Think Fiddler on the Roof. Remember the little village where Tevye and his family lived? A shtetl. Right? Marc Chagall was born into one of those little shtetls called Vibetsk. As a young boy, others began to observe his ability to paint. Uh, eventually, this painting would lead itself to stained glass work. Uh, there were pogroms upon pogroms visited on this little town of Vitebsk. And so when he became a young adult, he was able to escape and to go to Paris. He was 24. But Russia was home for him. And so when he was 27, he moved back. The Tsars were finally done away, but communism took their place. So again, he escaped, this time to a modern city with some of the finest universities in the world. Berlin. And in 1934, of course, Adolf Hitler came to power. It was not a safe place for Jews. So he and his wife escaped to Paris. And then they heard that the Nazis were in control and the Jews were being rounded up in France as well. And they escaped to the United States of America. When the war was finally over, they went to Europe again. Uh, in Zurich. There's a beautiful church, and it has a Chagall window. On the island of Sicily, there's a beautiful church, and it has a Chagall window. Marc Chagall did thousands of works. A new biography of him says that he worked too much, too quickly, too quickly, that he did his best work before he was 34 years of age. He lived to be 97. And this biographer says that he worked so fast and furiously because that childhood in that little shtetl he was never able to leave behind. He was always convinced he would be poor again, not have enough to eat, and there would be an enemy of the Jews as there had been one all of his life chasing him from one country to another. When he was an old man and invited people to come and see his studio, he would ask them, Do you love Chagall? Do you love Chagall? And once when he was 86, he went home to Russia and was shown one of his paintings from a time when he was 34. And he looked at it and said, I was a good artist, wasn't I? In the house of bread, there was no bread. That which truly fed, that which truly nourished, that which truly made life everything it ought to be. And so they moved. Number two, every Christmas Eve, as we're reading the stories of the birth of Jesus, one of our ministers reads the passage about Ephrathah from the tribe of Ephrathah in Bethlehem of Judea. Ephrathah means fertility. It means fruitfulness. And what's happened to Naomi? Her husband and both of her sons have died. The sons, according to the story, have been married ten years and neither has produced a child. 
In that day, producing babies was all important. And a woman who had no sons and no grandsons and no husband was a woman so vulnerable to the world. So this storyteller says, from the tribe of fruitfulness, no fruit. No fruit. Nathan Hintoff loves music, uh, loves Jewish music, the music of his own people, and says the first time he remembers being moved, really moved by music, was sitting beside his father in a synagogue on Yom Kippur. He says it was just a boy, but I've never forgotten the cantor, the hazan. He had on a black robe and a black peaked hat. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the rabbi is going to speak to the largest crowd of the year, it was the cantor who stirred my heart. He sang, Adonai Ma'adam, O Lord, what is man that thou wouldst be mindful of him? When I consider the stars, the sun, the moon, which thou hast ordained, what is a person that you would care for persons? He said, Friday after Friday, I was taken to synagogue and sat by my father, and I would hear the cantor. I don't remember what the rabbis preached, but I remember what the cantor sang. The notes, sometimes so high, almost like a cry. And sometimes so low, they were almost like a rumble. The candor of our synagogue was terrific. It sounded as if he were arguing with God on behalf of the people. The Jews who went to my synagogue, he said, were hard-working, poor people who needed a word of encouragement. And Friday night after Friday night, it was the candor who sang soul music. You could feel it. Even when I was a child, I could feel it. That every time he asked, Adonai, my Lord, why are you mindful of people? The reassurance was, well, because that's who God is. God is the one who created and God is the one who loves. Brings us to number three. Dr. Kathleen Farmer has written one of the commentaries on Ruth that I like very much. And in Dr. Farmer's commentary, she says, Our new Revised Standard Version, though we think it's the best on the market for accuracy and readability, does a poor job with one of these verses. When Naomi says to the two daughters-in-law, May the Lord, and this is the name given to Moses at the burning bush, may the Lord, who was real for Moses, who led him back to Egypt, who freed our people, who led us back to the mountain, who gave us the Ten Commandments, that one deal kindly with you. Dr. Farmer says that's weak, deal kindly. This is translating the all-important word chesed. Chesed, the word used more than any other in the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures to describe the very nature and heart of God. 
It is usually translated for us as never failing love or steadfast love. Dr. Farmer says, it's mercy. It's grace. May you know the mercy, the grace, the unmerited favor of the one who came to Moses at the burning bush, who saved our people, parted the waters of the sea, gave us the Ten Commandments. May this one have chesed for you. Now, this is a Hebrew story. Wonderful. But you and I are a long time after this story. And we know another story about the chesed of God. As John would write it, God had so much chesed for the world that He sent His only Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. As Gail and I reflect from time to time on our life together, when she married me, I was pastoring two little tiny churches. Um, I was just finishing my sophomore year in college. Uh, She went with me every Sunday morning to my smaller church. We averaged 16. And then we drove 17 miles and I preached to 56 on average. 56. We never dreamed at that point we would be able to go to the places we've been and see the things we've seen. For years, we joined guided tour groups of one kind or another. And then about eight or nine years ago, we decided maybe we could get along just the two of us in Europe. Uh, We'd do the trains of Europe. We did England, Scotland the first time. That was easier. The English we could understand well enough. The Scots we had a little trouble with, but but we got along fine. And then the next year we went to to Germany. I had a couple of years of German, and I'm not fluent, but we could order something to eat and, and ask how much it was to ride in this taxi or how far to the bus station or whatever. But eventually, one of those summers, we made our way to Italy. Gail is Italian-American, as you know, so she loves to go to Italy. So do I. So do our sons. The food is wonderful, of course. And there's so much great art throughout Italy. Now, when you go with the guided tours, you go to the big places. You go to Florence. And you go through the Ifuzi Palace. And you see Michelangelo's magnificent David boy. You see these great, great works of art. They take you to Rome and you see the Sistine Chapel. You see the Vatican. You see Michelangelo's Pietà and so on. But we were going to do the small towns by train. And in one of those small towns, Abrezzo, there's a great work of art. There was a worthy patron there back in 1450 who commissioned an artist named Piero to paint his church, the village church. Now, in 1450, confirmands could not read nor write, and so they were taught with pictures, eventually with carvings and stained glass. And so at Abrezzo, Piero told the story of the Bible in beautiful paintings. 550 years ago. One of those is a panel of Adam and Eve. But a little different take from any I'd ever seen before or since. 
Adam and Eve decide they cannot trust God, who has told them that everything here is for them and it's all wonderful to avoid just one tree. Because if they ate the fruit from that tree, they would die. And a talking snake came along and convinced them that God could not be trusted, that in fact, if they would eat from that tree, they would live as long as God and be as wise as God. They decided to eat. And Piero has, has betrayed that, this fall of humankind. And then what happens? God said, you will die. They died. And where Adam is buried, a branch of the tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was cut and planted on his grave. And in time it grew and became a big, big tree. And from it was made a cross on which Jesus was crucified. There it is for little 12-year-old Italians to be taught the story, God's story. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. We know this chesed. We know that this one loves Ruth and Orpah as much as he loved Naomi or Elimelech or Melon or Chilion. All have the goodwill of this God. Number four. In verse 16, there are no verbs. In Hebrew, Ruth literally says to Naomi, Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Therefore, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. I'm going with you. And this story of Ruth is about two Moabite young women who know what it's like to give chesed, who give more than is expected of them, more than is expected of them, like God does. God who gives more and makes it possible for us to give more. Andrew Tevington is one of our Methodist preachers in Oklahoma City. He's on staff at Church of the Servant over there where Dr. Robert Gorell is the senior pastor. Andrew recently wrote a story for the people in that church. And he was telling about a time when he was a missionary to Russia, 14 years ago, 1994. Uh, you remember that the wall in Berlin came down in 1989. The Soviet Union was falling apart at that point. Okay, five years after that, Andrew was a Christian Methodist missionary into Russia. He said they had been given uh, by the Methodist Church these thousands of copies of the Bible in Russia. Russian, and they were to go and distribute these freely to the people. It started in Moscow, but soon he said we moved out into the villages around Moscow, sort of making ever-increasing circles there. And in one small town, he said, we had rented a theater for the day, just as a place for us to, to tell this story and to give books, Bibles. He said we were just at the giving the book stage when I saw an elderly woman walk up close to the theater 
And we'd put on the marquee who we were and that we were there giving Russian Bibles. But I gathered maybe this woman could not read. Because she looked at the sign for several minutes, it seemed, and then she turned and walked away. But she saw others going into the theater and coming out with these books, so she turned and came back. And she looked at the sign again and then turned and walked away. Andrew said, I didn't know whether I should chase her, try to help her understand or not. But I watched, and that second time she turned and came back. And when she got close enough, he said, I only knew two or three words in Russian, but I said to her, please, and held out one of the books. And so she walked up close enough to me to take the book from my hand. I turned my attention to someone else, and suddenly this woman began to cry, almost hysterically, and to speak very loudly in a language I'd never heard before. I didn't know what I had done to her, what had happened to her, and I was trying to figure this out when suddenly he said there was a little boy just right between her and me, and he started translating, saying, she say, communism, 80 years. She say, she thinks God has forgotten Russians. She say, God has not forgotten Russians. And by the time the little boy said that last thing, he was so caught up himself, he started to, oh, to weep. And Andrew says, and then she wept some more, and then I wept with them. For God had never, ever forgotten the Russians, nor any of us as well. 